Hello, this is The Business. I'm Adit Chakraborty, and on this week's podcast, it's cashback time for the bank bosses. Vince Cable tells us what he thinks. Just your politics isn't real politics, and the same is true in banking. And this still leaves unresolved, you know, the basic issue about how you deal with bonuses amongst all their colleagues. And does a hung parliament mean a hamstrung economy? Plus, Toyota's billion-pound disaster. We talk to our man in Japan. One or two Japanese politicians have accused uh, the US uh, transport minister and transport authorities of indulging in a spot of Japan bashing, sort of reminiscent of the trade wars of the 1980s. Welcome. The Bank of England's Governor Mervyn King says quantitative easing may have to restart. Well, so does my reign back in charge of this podcast. And in the studio with me today, we have The Guardian's economics editor, Larry Elliott. Hello, Larry. Hello. And Deborah Hargreaves, The Guardian's head of business. Business editor. Yes. For four more days. Yes, tell us about this. Was it something we said on this podcast? That's right, yeah, I can't take it any longer. It's all the abuse. All the abuse I get day in, day out. I, I hear that you're one of the regular callers of the National Bullying Helpline. <laughs> oh, soon to be revealed. <laughs> anyway, let's get going. Now, when was the last time you heard about bank bosses handing back money? Well, in the last few days, that's exactly what they've been doing. This week, Eric Daniels, chief executive of Lloyd's Banking Group, became the fourth bank chief in a week to turn down his bonus for the year. He bowed to public pressure and waived £2.3 million. Now, let's not forget this is a loss-making bank that we're expecting to report a loss of at least £3 billion on Friday. But he follows Barclays executives John Varley and Bob Diamond, who also turned down their bonuses last week, while Stephen Hester, chief exec of Royal Bank Scotland, has told his chairman he'll do the same. Before we get the thoughts of Deborah and Larry, first let's hear what the Lib Dems money man, Vince Cable, thinks of this. Is he pleased? It's a gesture in the right direction, um, and Mr Varley having uh, taken the first move, it was impossible to see how Mr Hester and Mr Daniels could conceivably have taken bonuses in loss-making state-owned banks, but... Um, you know, gesture politics isn't real politics, and the same is true in banking. And uh, this still leaves unresolved, you know, the basic issue about how you deal with uh, bonuses amongst all their colleagues. Um, and so it remains the case that we, we do need to have proper reforms to make sure the bonus culture is curtailed. And we're still waiting to see a full implementation of the Turner principles, the payment of bonuses in uh, shares that are not redeemable for three years maximum. Uh, that still isn't happening. Even in the state-owned banks, people will be given, you know, are able to cash in any shares payments in, I think, 60 days in some cases. So we haven't got to the first base yet in... Um, disciplining the bonus culture and all the risks associated with it. We'll come back to the regulation question uh, in, in a minute. But just while we're talking about gesture politics, I mean, how many more gestures would you like? I mean, would you like the chief executive and the senior executives at HSBC also to waive their bonuses? Well, no, I, I'm not really interested in the gesture side of it. I think what what we now need is a proper system I mean, it was actually quite a clever move by Mr. Barley. I mean, given that he and Bob Diamond and the others have uh, taken quite a lot of money out of Barclays. Uh, but, you know, it's quite a clever PR move. But let, let's get beyond PR and let's think about getting a proper system. 
and that means the Turner principles, it means full disclosure. And I would say what we ought to be aiming for uh, is a banking system that relies hardly at all on bonuses as a basic mechanism. I mean, the Swedish banking system was turned round in a way that um, bonuses hardly existing, some of the leading banks, and that's what we should be aspiring to here. So what would you have then? Bank executives become just salaried employees of an institution? Oh, well, I, I, th- I think actually that kind of model um, has quite a lot to commend it. And in terms of um, the bulk of banking, ordinary retail banking, um, that should be the norm uh, and indeed where um, you know bonuses have been introduced for kind of retail selling it's led to some very serious abuses so um, you know th- there is obviously a role for incentive payments in any uh, system in a, in a private enterprise economy but um, the bonus culture based essentially around the investment banks has become all dominant and uh, very destructive now, we are uh, recording this interview just uh, in the same week that RBS and Lloyds are going to be coming out their results. Um, and one of the things that we're expecting is, a, is, a, is a, for two banks to announce a huge loss between them. But how f- much progress do you think has been made on the other thing of, of lending by banks to businesses and to households? Well, I think that's the crucial uh, issue we should be focusing on. I mean, there is a lot of attention paid to... Um, the bonus pool, and you know, there is that is symbolically and to some extent substantively an important issue. But the real issue is whether banks are performing a proper role in relation to the real economy. And the evidence shows, and the Bank of England figures, very recent figures, show that um, lending, net lending, to the business sector apart from real estate was is down, I think, something like 16% over the year. Now, clearly, some of that demand uh, in a recessionary economy, there is less demand for credit, but there's also equally a supply problem, um, and that's not just me being opinionated. I mean, there is a lot of evidence from all the kind of business federations, from the Institute of Directors, the FSB, the Chambers of Commerce, enormous amount of anecdote uh, from, uh, you know, very successful companies with... Uh, good profitability, good credit history, um, uh, that they're they're really struggling to get capital on reasonable terms from the banks. And you probably saw the Institute of Directors survey 10 days or so ago that six out of 10 of their members say they're being starved of capital. So there is a very real issue. And the worry I have here is that the two semi-nationalized banks, having been given Uh, legally binding lending obligations are not coming close to meeting it. And I challenged Alistair Darling to come out and explain on the anniversary of those agreements, you know, why, why this isn't happening and how much lending is actually getting through. Deborah, Vince there talks about bank bonuses being a symbol rather than a substantive issue. Do you think he's right or has he been too high-minded? Well, I mean, they're obviously a very potent symbol of excess in the banking sector. I also think they're rewarding, they're skewing rewards um, to bankers um, who have um, an incentive to take risks um, because they they get a reward on the upside. So they get a big bonus for um, 
uh, risks that pay off, but they don't suffer on the downside. If they have a risk that goes wrong and makes a big loss for the bank, that loss is not theirs. Okay, they might not get a bonus, but they still get their salary, which let's not forget are pretty large by most people's standards. Now, I think um, there are various suggestions around about this, about paying bonuses. And my view is that Banks should run salaried employees. I don't see any need for bonuses at all. So you agree with what Vince says there? Yeah, I do. And and I I, I mean there is this there is this issue about talent and, and, and you know, I think we should ban them and all banks should be banned from paying them. And then you wouldn't have this competitive um the tendency for, for banks to poach other um, bankers, the, would you um, ban bonuses just in the banking sector or across all companies? I, I think. Bear in mind, you've got four days left here. <laughs> I think mer- I, I see no, no. I have no problem with merit awards. What I can't, what, what really um, annoys me and, and has cont- has got worse over the years is is a huge ratcheting up of executive pay. This is this is bonuses and and salaries and perks and and I mean all of the rewards of the boom of the of the previous twenty years have filtered upwards. There has been very little trickle down effect, and there are very strong statistics to back this up, showing that pay for the top ten percent has has increased much more quickly than for everyone else. And so so. All of the all of the benefits are going to the people who don't really need them. Now, why should that be? Why are we not rewarding people for doing what I would say are more worthwhile jobs? Um, and Surely, why? the point also is that we're actually we're actually paying people bonuses for doing their job. I, mean, bon- I have no problem with a bonus, providing it's it's actually something for doing something extraordinary or special or different, you know, out of the way of your job. But actually, what's happening in the city is that people expect to be paid large bonuses just for what people in the in the in the rest of the economy would consider just doing their job yeah but, doing but, a job and getting paid for it now now there is a suggestion by the um, shareholders association that banks um, that have had to increase their capital during the year or who have waived their dividend should not be able to pay bonuses at all now that's quite interesting uh, an idea because it wouldn't ban them altogether but it would mean that banks that were in financial trouble caused usually by their risk-taking um, investment bankers would wouldn't be able to pay any bonuses that year. Deborah uh, and Larry, you're surely right that over the last couple of decades there's been a big explosion in executive pay and that the, the culture of the city has uh, sort of changed uh, in a way to reflect that. But do you not think that something extraordinary has happened over the last 18 months, two years? I mean, Larry, I can't think of an occasion where big chief executives at multinational companies have been shamed into handing back their bonuses in this kind of fashion. This is extraordinary, isn't it? I think finally they're starting to get it. I think there was a period in late 2009 when they were thinking just about brazening it out. I think that there was a period there where Alistair Darling and Gordon Brown started to float ideas about taxing bank bonuses and there was this sense of outrage and they would all <coughs> you know, flee the country and go off to Geneva or wherever. Um, and they suddenly realised that actually they were totally loathed, these people, that people out there in the big wide world who were taking pay cuts and, and going on short, short working weeks in order to keep their jobs were just totally disgusted by this behaviour. And I think the penny did drop at that point that um, enough was enough um, and I think that's that that's part of the that's part of the recovery process part of the healing but as Vince said it's only a very small part of it and I think he's right to say that the bigger issue is what is the state what is the government actually doing 
with its controlling interest of the banks. Of the banks, and I think. But, the, but also, and I think. Wait a minute. I mean, I think in 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 four or five years' time, we may see this period as a really big missed opportunity. There are two separate issues going on here. One's about pay and the other's about banks. And we can come back to the issue of what you do with what the government should do about the banking sector in, in a bit. But just on pay, I mean, this is a very surprising episode in which, as you say, ba- bank bosses look like they were going to r- ride roughshod over public opinion. In the last few weeks, they've started to actually take on board what the press and what the public have been saying about them. I, I, I mean, I, it's quite an interesting question, isn't it? It's, it's just to think about whether this state of affairs can continue. You know, will we get to a stage where it becomes permanently unacceptable for b- bank bosses to be paying themselves tens of millions of pounds each day? No, I don't, think, I don't think that's happening. I think that, you know, these people are very smart. They've got smart advisors. And what they're being told, I'm so sure, is, job. is roll with the punches. And just you know, if you if you if you waive your bonus this year, just let things ride. If you, if the bank returns to profitability next year and the year after, then gradually the, you'll see the return of the bonus culture. This is not a profound shift. It's something which has been forced on the banks by the strength of public opinion, and it will not persist unless there's some some serious and permanent culture change, which I don't yeah, actually... Yeah, but do. hold on a minute. Hold on a minute, though. Why do these banks... Why do they deserve bonuses? Why is Eric Daniels in for a £2.3 million but, pound but, bonus? But Larry, Larry's not saying That's that they... Just, I've not heard yeah. in Larry's not, comments not, that he actually no, thinks but, that, that... No, but the thing is, well, the question I'm asking is, why does a remuneration committee at Lloyd's Bank sit and meet around the table and think, OK, we're going to make a £3 billion loss this year? Oh, yeah, but he's done quite well, hasn't he, Eric Fine. Daniels? Fine. No, I think he deserves quite a nice bonus. But no one, this, no one around this table would disagree with that. No, the, no, question, the question is, how do you get to that stage of affairs where it looks permanently like that sort of behaviour is, is out of order? Yeah, well, of course, it's not out of order. I mean, it's the remuneration committees that should be putting a check on these things. OK, we have these bankers who are saying very magnanimously, oh, I will waive my bonus. And, and you know, this is such a sacrifice for me. I'm I'm such a, you know, I, I'm so, so struggling with my basic salary of a million pounds don't forget these bankers have sold a lot of shares they've got a lot of things coined in from previous years but what I think is that that board is there to restrain this sort of behaviour that remuneration committee should meet and say well we obviously haven't met our targets this year because we made a whopping great loss so there is no bonus I think I think most banks start a lot of we, there's an awful lot of attention paid here to bonuses paid to chief executives rightly so but there, an awful lot of the bonus culture is also for quite lowly paid employees and for them actually to have a, ba- a higher basic salary rather than having half their salary in bonus would be advantageous because they would get higher higher pensions as a result. So I think quite a lot of bank bank staff, the lowlier paid bank staff, would actually quite welcome a change in the in the in the in the bonus system and have, and, and have more of their uh, more of their remuneration paid in basic pay. But there you're talking about high street banks. I mean just going back to investment talking about, high street banks, talking yeah. about investment banks and the kind of banks that we normally associate with the city. Um, I think you're right, Deborah, to say that remuneration committees ought to be doing more about executive pay. But that ignores the fact that beneath executives on investment banks is a whole raft of staff who expect to get paid between January and February the much more than their basic pay in bonuses. Oh, what yeah. do you do about yeah. that culture? Well, I mean, that is, you know, that is the culture that's run right through the city, this idea that you would you, you get paid a certain percentage of the profits you make for the bank. Why is that? No, no one else thinks that in another industry you don't go in to become a sales well maybe you're paid on commission as a sales manager 
that is their view, that this is their commission for making these deals for the bank. Let's not forget what these deals are. You know, it's buying and selling companies, most of which most of those deals work out really badly for the companies involved, very badly for the employees who often lose their jobs. It's selling government bonds, which is a license to print money at the moment, but not exactly hard. And it's it's charging huge fees for doing all sorts of corporate work. Now, that's another thing that you could crack down on. You could give shareholders a vote on fees that are paid to investment bankers in any sort of merger work, restructuring work, that would be a good good reform as well. And when you go on to become head of corporate communications at some city bank, you can come on... Oh, of course, I'll disagree with myself then. I could turn round fully. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. Now, the prospect of a hung parliament is looming over Britain. The Guardian's latest ICM poll this week shows the Tories' lead is crumbling. The gap is now down seven points, with support for the Tories at its lowest point for two years, which indicates that Britain could be on course for a hung parliament for the first time in decades. Larry, hung parliaments normally mean markets in disarray, business bosses not quite sure what they should do with investment decisions, uh, and generally in an economy going into stagnant waters. Well, we don't know that, because the last hung parliament we had here was 1974, between February and October. That was pretty much the only one we've had in the post-war period and admittedly that wasn't uh, a particularly good it wasn't a golden time it wasn't UK a particularly economy. golden time for UK economic management it was you know just after the first oil shock inflation was going up very strongly and the Labour government minority government decided that it wouldn't do very much in the six months between the February and October elections for fear of upsetting the voters so inflation became very heavily embedded and we had you know 27% inflation in 75 in the IMF in 1976 so no not a great advertisement for a hung parliament but interestingly there there's been some work done on hung parliaments by the House of Commons library researchers who've shown that um, in the in the last 40 years there have been 10 big fiscal retrenchments around the world. So, you know, this is a sign of how tough governments can be about getting down budget deficits. And seven of the 10 have been in countries with minority or hung parliaments, so minority, minority governments or hung parliaments. So there's no real statistical evidence that actually having a majority government or you know a first past the post system leads to a tougher uh, attack on budget deficits in fact I mean Italy is, is 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 the country which saw the biggest fall in its budget deficit in the 1990s as it was trying to get into the into the into the single currency so the evidence is is somewhat somewhat less strong than you you'd imagine although you know I think you you'd have to say that there would have to be a fairly unanimous view across the parties that they wanted to do this stuff. But there, there is, isn't there? There is, yeah. I think, I mean, I think that, 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 that's the point. I mean, I think if you, if you look at what Labour, the Lib Dems and the Tories are saying about the budget deficits, there's quite a lot of um, dispute about timing, but I don't think any of them really uh, differ in that they want the budget deficit to be much lower at the end of the next parliament than it is at the start of it. Um, but wouldn't they spend a lot of time arguing about the timing? I think they'd spend some time arguing about it, and that—that that is the risk. I think if if the, if the parties started to bitch on for for months and months and months about the timing, rather than build some sort of solid consensus, then there would be a risk that that the markets would would would, would be worried about the UK's um, fiscal plans, and we'd have a sort of you know Greece Greece style attack on 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 our on our currency. 
uh, or on our bond market. But I think that if the parties showed themselves to be have, have a you know solid plan for, for doing it, even if it was delayed until 2011, I think the markets would actually respond quite positively to that. That's the economic management side of things, Deborah. But we're always told that markets hate uncertainty. How do you think markets might respond to the prospect of a minority Cameron government? Well, yeah, markets do hate uncertainty. But if you had, say, um, Vince Cable as Chancellor, I think the markets are quite like that. What do you think, Larry? Um, I think the I think Vince has got quite a lot of credibility out there, and I think you know I think that um, one of the problems that the Tories are going to have is that both Cameron and Osborne are fairly young and un- untested. Um, you know, neither of them have had held of, held office before, and these are quite difficult times for the economy. You know, we're, they'll be coming, assuming they they win in some form, either as a majority or as a minority administration. They are going to be coming into power in much more difficult circumstances than Tony Blair, who was also untested in 1997. He came when the economy had been recovering for five years, growth was strong, unemployment was coming down, the budget deficit was coming down. The, the, the Conservatives, if they win, are going to come into power with the economy perhaps going into a double-dip recession, with the public finances in one hell of a mess, and 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 with you know a set of challenges which are altogether much more difficult than, than any Conservative government in, in, in living memory. And isn't that the point that if you've got a, let's say you've got a a Cameron in power with a minority government, Chancellor Osborne will have an awful lot of work to do to placate his backbenchers who either want to see the cuts go sharp and harder and especially for there to be tax cuts. Rather than I think I think they've I think the Tories have given up on the idea of tax cuts. I, don't I think there's a rump on the back benches. There is, but I think they'll just ignore them. I mean, I, I just can't. the old supply side is in the eighties. I, mean, I just think that those people are, are busted flush. There's, there, there's absolutely no possibility of there being tax cuts in the first half of, a, of, of this Tory government, and perhaps for the whole for the whole of a, of a Tory administration. I think that the the priority is is firstly get the economy moving and get, get growth going again. And for all the Tories bluster about you know taking the acts of the deficit, they'll probably defer any real pain until 2011 I think Um, and then the priority will be probably quite heavy restraints on public spending which will then they will hope will free up some money by the end of the parliament for for some small tax cuts. Okay and um, this is an area we normally get into on the business podcast but let's have some predictions for what we think the election is going to produce. Larry you first. Go on Larry give us your (laughs) prediction we know what it is. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't rule out Labour being the biggest party um, after the election. I think that the polls are um, narrowing. Uh, they're narrowing quite appreciably. Labour has had by far the best of the skirmishes in the new year. Um, I think it's won most of the economic arguments since the turn of the year. And the Tories have not actually performed that well under far. So, and, and, and there's three months to go. So, uh, I, I can see, given the given the vagaries of the electoral system, that Labour could do a lot, lot better than people think. And I wouldn't rule out that Labour, Labour being the biggest party in a hung parliament. Deborah, I think Tories biggest party, but possibly hung parliament too. But I, I, unfortunately, I just think people think it's time for a change. Not only are its cars being diagnosed with a whole range of problems, but Toyota could now face criminal prosecution in the US. To bring us right up to date, I spoke to the Guardian's man in Japan, Justin McCurry. It's gone from being a kind of bad corporate embarrassment to uh, a criminal investigation this week. That's right. Uh, Toyota has very recently admitted that uh, it it had received a subpoena from a federal grand jury asking for documents relating to these sticky accelerators. 
and this is a problem that may have caused as many as 34 deaths uh, over the last decade. And Toyota said it's going to cooperate with the investigation, but this has just sort of added another layer of misery for Toyota on top of this revelation earlier in the week that it had negotiated a, a recall of cars on the cheap with US authorities in 2007. And of course, the fact that the recall has now spread to more than eight and a half million vehicles, including significantly uh, hundreds of thousands of Prius hybrid vehicles back here in Japan. Now, we're talking about a company that pretty much sums up Japan Inc. It's also having to explain itself to US politicians. Is there any sense of an old-fashioned trade war about to kick off between America and Japan here? I think there's a very tiny element of that. I mean, the, the Japanese press, elements of the Japanese press, and one or two Japanese politicians have accused uh, the US uh, transport minister and transport authorities of indulging in a spot of Japan bashing, sort of reminiscent of the trade wars of the 1980s. But I think there's a lot more to it than that. And of course, that argument also overlooks the fact that Toyota employs uh, tens of thousands of of, uh, workers in the US. So there's certainly no self-interest on the part of US politicians in wanting to damage a major employer of American workers. Okay, but Toyota is a huge company in Japan. How would it affect the wider Japanese economy? There's certainly concern here that what is at present a recall affecting, as you say, a representative of Japan, one of the companies that helped transform Japan's reputation from you know one of shoddy workmanship just after the war into uh, one of, of real quality and reliability. But there is concern that it could spark a wider backlash against Japanese products in general. This week, the foreign minister, the transport minister, as well as the presidents of Honda and Mitsubishi have all said that they they fear that this could turn into something much bigger. And of course, much depends on how Akio Toyoda responds to the questions from US politicians in Washington later this week. But at least, I mean, the one good thing that might come out of this, if Uh, God forbid another Japanese company finds itself at the centre of similar allegations is that it can look to the Toyota debacle and it now has, you know, a perfect example of how not to deal with a recall crisis, particularly when it comes to consumers in overseas markets. Justin McCurry from Tokyo there. Deborah, how not to do it? I mean, I can't imagine that the world's largest automaker, the second largest company in the world, could make such a big, big PR mess. You, you? you kind of wonder, don't you? You kind of wonder where their advice was coming from because they made all the classic mistakes. Every company that gets into this sort of problem with a recall, with a, with a, with a big um, health issue... The best thing is to own up straight away. Look at the Cadbury salmonella thing. I mean, you know, trying to cover things up just makes it worse. Everything leaks out and then you get into a lot more trouble. People are much more disaffected with you. If you own up right from the beginning and say, OK, this has been a real problem, but we're doing all we can. We're we're recalling all the cars. We're going to fix them. We're going to sort it out. Then fine. But they've made partial recalls that the leak of the memos this week was very damaging showing that they were trying to save 100 million dollars by a quick fix i mean that they they haven't come clean about what they're doing and they haven't had a total recall the one that sticks in my mind is perio when they had benzene in the in the drinks they cleared all their stocks overnight almost over well over the course of a few days and destroyed all of it in order to rebuild faith in the company and then they could start all over again and when the uk government was looking at 
the BSE crisis. In the end, they decided that was what they had to do with cows. They had to kill them all. I don't know if you remember that horrible period when all those cows were burnt, but, but they had to try and eradicate that disease from the supply chain. And I think the only way is to try and do a huge thing and, and try and do it in an honest way. And this has just been a catalogue of errors. Larry, one thing you notice whenever there is a kind of big disaster uh, on this kind of scale, whether it's Toyota or uh, the BSE crisis in Britain, is that the country that's suffering it often starts complaining that other countries are treating it worse on no other grounds than nationalistic ones. And you've noticed that this time around, people in Japan are talking about Americans going out Japan bashing. Well, there's probably something in that. I mean, if you go back 20 years, there was almost the same sort of panic in America about Japan as there currently is about China. And there was a great fuss about Chinese, about Japanese cars coming in and taking over the market. And one of the reasons they did take over the American market was that they were actually better cars. I mean, there was, you know, the US car industry tended to turn out cars that the market didn't really want and weren't particularly well made. Went for quite a lot of America, other American goods too. So, I mean, there, there is an element here where, the, where you just sense that the... U.S. administration and the Americans are getting their getting their own back on the Japanese, and it's kind of interesting. I think that the difference here between um, a company that sells a physical product like a car or or bottled water or wine, and a company that sells a toxic uh, non tangible product like you know like the American companies that were selling subprime mortgages or, <laughs> or CDOs, because you can get away with it. It seems like you know where where is the where is the where is the pr- potential prosecutions for all those companies that sold dodgy loans or or had all these you know dodgy CDOs on their uh, on, on on their books. So I mean it's it's very very different for a company that's selling a physical product. You know if 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 if, if Tesco here tried to sort of get away with selling dodgy mint pies and cover it up, then you know the, it would be out of business within a week and the, the executive would be banged up, rightly so. But it's kind of it's, it's kind of interesting the way in which there is this sort of uh, disjunction between what happens to a to a bank and to a company like Toyota. Well, you could still get voters in Athens taking on Goldman Sachs for selling it dodgy tea. But it's much more it's much more difficult, isn't it? And it's it's it's, it's, it's somehow much easier to get away with it, even though the damage you cause to the economy is potentially much 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 larger. And all those toxic assets, don't forget, are still on the books of the banks. They haven't been cleared no, out. No, so. but I mean, you yeah, know, Toyota. Deborah's absolutely right. Of course, Toyota um, have completely and utterly screwed this up. But you know, it's it, it's it's a very expensive business to recall every car. If you're if you're if you're making cars which retail for what twenty thirty thousand dollars dollars a throw, and you're and you're the, you're the biggest automaker in the world, then that's a hell of a lot of cars and a hell of a lot of money in a in a market which is to say the least fragile so you know you can see why someone would say well can we get away what can we get away with you know is is this is this somehow doable to 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 not go for the big bang option i'm sure that's what they thought um and as ever it's, it's it's blown up in their faces well that's it for this week thanks to larry elliott and for the last time deborah hargreaves this podcast was produced by andy duckworth i'm edit check reporting thanks for listening